spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 121st Annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. Do you want to hear about my wild weekend adventure, Phil? Yes. Yeah, let's hear it. So I uh, I decided to finally treat myself a little bit and I'd been talking about getting a new computer forever or building a new one and I finally said fuck it I never do any buy myself anything I'm gonna do it so Saturday night I go out and get all the parts and everything I'm excited I'm hooking up all all the components it's about 1230 I've got it to a state where I'm like all right I'm ready to try to power it on this is kind of like the most critical point because you don't know if you fuck something up or if you didn't yeah turn it on nothing happens i'm like son of a bitch i'm like okay i'm fiddling with stuff turn it on again nothing happens start unplugging replugging checking all the little circuits and everything all the components and i'm like i kept doing that and tinkering and i'm looking on the internet what could be wrong and I reset the processor and all that. Uh, people who build computers know messing with the little tiny processor is very scary because you can fuck up that little expensive piece pretty quick. Yeah. Anyway, it is 3 a.m. And I am like losing hope. I don't know what I'm going to do. One person's like, hey, uh, sometimes the RAM, when you get RAM fresh out of the box, it could be bad. Pull, I pull out the one strip, fires on. This stupid little fucking piece was broke from the store and mm. it was causing the entire thing not to work. So okay. at about 4 a.m., I finally got it together <laughs> and in a semi functional state. Uh, yeah, I, I also learned that computers no longer really come with CD drives, but you need yeah. to install Windows from a CD. Uh, ROM so I literally had <laughs> like the CD-ROM outside of the computer <laughs> like just sitting on top of <laughs> the tower running the disc I'm like I don't know if that's the safest way to do it but it's the only option I had yeah I have that same setup with my laptop um, yeah basically the laptop I bought what was it like five months ago has everything that I wanted except for a CD drive so I settled and then I bought a like a like a $40 outside of the, you know, deal CD Jack deal. But yeah, it's, I mean, you might've wanted to choose a different time than three 30 in the morning to be fiddling with that little processor. I'd have said maybe sleep on it. You nah, know, I dude, when I get determined, I don't give up. Just full of coffee and vigor. Just yeah. <laughs> shaky dude. Oh, it, it, it's uh, it, it's really fun, but I have like PTSD from the first one I ever built. Because yes. I remember my old roommate, he yeah. he helped me build it, 
and that very first one, we didn't put the spacers in it, so it automatically grounded the motherboard and destroyed it instantly. Yes, I do remember the nastiest of Nate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, stinky old he is Nate. The, he is the type of person you want building your computer for you, though. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyway, Phil, okay, that was my excitement for the weekend. By the way, computer's awesome. Runs all my games top fucking notch. Looks amazing. So I'm really happy about that. But I do hate the Bitcoiners because you can't get any graphics cards. A new one. I had to use my old one, but which is... It's whatever, but... Uh, yeah, and yeah. mixed with COVID, with all of those factories being, you know, either skeleton crude or shut down, there's a lot of uh, a lot of computer parts and, well, everything basically a CPU on a car. That's the reason why it's really hard to find, like, brand new cars right now, because a lot of those factories that were doing the CPUs were shut down, so... You know what? Along, the- with, along with other, you know, things for a car in factories, but the CPUs are one of them. Uh, one quick thing be- before your news story here... Have you noticed, I've been noticing this, grocery stores are getting kind of barren again. I I haven't really noticed it yet. No, not yet. Some of the products that I usually buy, there's not like entire aisles that are bare. But there are like some products that I normally like to get that are missing for like a week. So I have noticed that. I have noticed they've had some, maybe some shipping issues or some supply issues. Yeah, I With uh... like, with a certain few things. I have, I noticed it when I was at Target earlier this week. The entire ramen section was completely gone. Um, I'd been hearing from other people, something even like a gas station inside of it is uh, barren with supplies. So I I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't know. Nobody seems to know, but. uh, Well, stock up on toilet paper, folks. (laughs) We might be in it for again. I have a friend who, uh, I have a friend who bought a bidet. Um, oh, okay. Life changing, apparently. So we could take that whole toilet paper right out of the equation yeah. there. Just live your best life. Get a bidet and a squatty potty. Dude, they she swears by the bidet. Best yeah. purchase ever. But uh, all right, okay. all right, Phil. Uh, what what <laughs> what did oh, you was, have to talk about? Nothing as monumental as uh, getting a bidet or anything. I was just gonna mention uh, kind of a news story that broke uh, after our. Uh, podcast taping last week was uh, Andrew Cuomo or Cuomo I should say resigned from his office of governor uh, because of all the uh, sexual harassment allegations and I guess I didn't realize this but he was actually in the process of possibly being impeached so much like the uh, the character that we're going to talk about today faced impeachment and decided to bow out so very quotable quote from Mr. Andrew Cuomo yeah apparently he said I'm not perverted. I'm Italian. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So obviously he's meaning, I guess, that Italians are a little extra friendly. They touch little, a little yeah. bit more than, uh, I guess. Yeah. It's. It would have been hilarious if he would have said that while wearing like the Super Mario mustache and like <laughs> the suspenders and, you know. Maybe well, did the Mario I, voice. I, I'm excited to hear like uh, your your guys on crime and sports. See what uh, he's very Italian. Obviously, I wonder what he'll have to say about that quote. Oh yeah, I hope he does mention it. That's my every. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because you know, growing up in Iowa, didn't know any Italian people. Didn't know you know, like 
all of the jokes that he has basically like about Italian people or about like people he grew up with people in his family and all that. And it's fucking hilarious, but that's a uh, James it's Patrick Gallo. Yeah. Prime and sports. Yeah. Well, he East coast, a lot of a, a uh, lot of Italian Americans on the East coast. Yes. So anyway, Phil, speaking of maybe another Italian American, actually, I don't really know. Uh, we have the continuation of Mr. Richard Milhouse Nixon. Is he yes. Italian? I do not believe he is Italian. Okay. No. All right. I don't, I don't know what Nixon is. Yeah. So he's apparently, uh, this isn't really part of the episode. I'm just like from my research. Apparently he's descended from like British royalty. Uh, his He and uh, I believe three of the five, three of his four brothers were given kind of like royal names. So they're kind of. Interesting. Yeah. In part one of this two-part series, we took a look at the early life and beginnings of the political career of the 37th president of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon, looking into what may have led to his election as president and, of course, subsequent downfall after becoming the first ever president to resign from office while embroiled in scandal and under congressional impeachment investigation. Today, we will examine the major political defining events of Nixon's political career, looking at his first ever election loss, early retirement, presidential election success, and finally, the legendary final flight out of Washington, D.C., and the shocking pardon that would eventually follow. Also, digging through some of the supposed dirty secrets of Richard Nixon's life, which were allegedly kept from the American public, and also, we're going to end with a little theory that I kind of cooked up about Richard Nixon over the past couple weeks of research that I've done. Excellent. You know what? I'm actually quite excited to hear this because outside of Watergate, I, I guess I don't really know that much about him. And I'll, I'm going to be looking forward to hearing the dirty little secrets about Mr. Uh, Nixon here. Yeah, actually for, well, considering he did have the, the two election wins, but he only did serve about half of his last term. He actually kind of had a jam-packed uh, tenure in office. I'm not really going to mention a lot of his, you know, the good things he did. I mean, I, I some of the good things he did, he did end the draft. He did kind of really steer us towards the end of the Vietnam War. And a lot of people don't realize this, but he actually was president, kind of really started the EPA. So okay. something that has actually taken a lot of hits over the years, but kind of really important for, you know, the kind of world that we want to live in. So, right. Uh, I didn't know that. Quite surprising. Yeah. So when we signed out last week, John F. Kennedy and Richard Milhouse Nixon were nearing the end of what would become one of the most tightly contested presidential elections of all time, with the opening salvo between the two political heavyweights coming at that year's September 26th, first presidential debate. This debate was also the first ever presidential debate to be televised, with a reported 70 million Americans getting the chance to see and hear the debates and also get a really good look at both of the candidates, which wouldn't work out very well for Richard Nixon. Okay, would they previously to this have to listen on the radio? Yes, so before this, it would have been all uh, radio broadcasts. 
And uh, before that, it would have all been put into the newspapers. Uh, famously, the Douglas-Lincoln debates were all in the newspapers across the country. Gotcha. Okay. That sounds almost as bad as like, remember, I think it's in the early 1900s when they were watching college football together and they'd have like that board of like players and the radio would come through and they'd like move them on the board (laughs) to see where they were at at the time. Have you seen that thing? Yeah, I've seen that, and I've also I just watched a movie on Netflix about um, like the beginnings of the soccer in uh, like the Euro Cup and the beginnings of the Premier League in England, and they kind of did the same thing. They listened on the radio, and then they had a big board with the pitch on it, and they kind of moved around like X's and O's. Basically. Oh God! Yeah, no, but, I don't want to I mean, do that. I mean, it was the best kind of experience you know you could get. It's not like you. We're used to seeing it on television and then had to go to that. You know, that was actually a really nice thing to have back then. Technically, if you can't afford, you know, if you can't watch the game uh, on ESPN, you can still kind of watch the game like that. I'm not even shitting you. Oh, well, yeah, it's on the Internet. You get to see it kind of they they put it up on a board and they show you like the line where the line of scrimmage is. You know, they show you the drive and like what a pat, how many passes there are, how many runs there are, and if there's like they'll end it with a punt and then it'll switch sides. So yeah, Hon- kind of the same. Honestly, I would kind of love to have read the Biden Trump debates in a newspaper. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All the like, Sir Trump, Mister Trump, can you let him answer, Mister Trump? Just like the whole fucking page is nothing but that. All right, anyway, yeah, they're just talking over each other. <laughs> yeah, continue <laughs> All on. Right. So going into the debate, Vice President Nixon actually held about a six-point lead over Senator Kennedy nationally and was actually seen as the favorite to win the presidency. Now, this was because he had come off of eight successful years under the tutelage of former general and president Dwight D. Eisenhower. However, as history has famously recorded, this would not be Nixon's night. And it all started in the lead up to the debate and how the candidates chose to spend the weeks preceding that fateful night. So you're going to sit there and tell me looks had nothing to do with this. Oh, I'm going to tell you looks had everything to do with this. For the first time, it was it was simply looks. All right. Let's hear it. Now, Kennedy took really like the couple of days before that first debate, like kind of just hanging out, you know, sitting out, tanning, kind of really just prepping, prepping with his brother Bobby and prepping with others about what he was going to talk about during this debate, the things they thought might come up, Uh, kind of what you would do before you had something big come up like this. He knew exactly how important this first ever televised debate would be. He also spent the weeks before on the campaign trail out in the sun tanning. So he was very tanned. He's very healthy. So he probably, you know, had a couple of cocktail waitresses that day, you know, like random chicks just, you know, getting them ready, you know, to go. It's Nixon or it's Kennedy, for yeah, God's sake. Yeah. Now, in contrast, Nixon would have actually implemented a 50 state strategy, making appearances or trying to make appearances in all 50 states, including newly minted states of Hawaii and Alaska. Though he would have to actually pause his tour because while on the campaign trail in those 50 states, he actually badly injured his knee and needed to actually stay in a hospital for a short time before debate night. 
Now, as a result of his hospital stay and the, the very long trips that he took, he actually looked very pale, thin, and sickly uh, to this televised audience. Of course, also looking very sweaty. Even on 180p TV, Black you can white, see, yes. yeah, you can see that fucking sweat on his upper goddamn lip. Here's the other thing: if he looked pale on black and white TV, you could probably barely even see him. Yes, it's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because he also decided to wear a gray suit. Now I'm going to mention it in a little bit. He he had the chance to go to kind of like a meeting to figure out like what the setting was going to be, what everything was, uh, the background and everything. He decided to wear this gray suit. It turns out that the background behind him was also pretty much the same color as his <laughs> suit. So it looked kind of like uh, with that 180p you were talking about, the low res black and white. It looked like a pale face just kind of hovering. <laughs> I mean, you could obviously see, you know, his reflection his or his uh, silhouette. And, you know, you could see his suit and everything. But with that gray behind him with the gray suit, it looked like a pale head kind of just floating around. It's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I'm assuming for people at the time, they probably figured it was a specter on the TV or something. <laughs> could have. Oh my god, John Kennedy's fighting that ghost on TV. Oh <laughs> shit. Exactly. Now, before the start of the debate, both Nixon and Kennedy were, like I just mentioned, invited to a pre-production meeting for the debate, though only actually Kennedy opted to attend this meeting. When Nixon did show up, he overheard that Kennedy had refused stage makeup of any kind, trying to seem, you know, as manly as Kennedy was. He also refused to be made up at all. Uh, he really didn't want to be seen as also like worrying about his looks. So he flat out refused. The problem was the reason why Kennedy refused the production team's makeup artists was only because he had actually brought his own team to make him up before the debate. And they gave him the best looking makeup that you could get. Even under the bright stage lights, he looked good, while Nixon looked near ghostly with a pronounced five o'clock shadow. It showed up very well on the black and white televisions. I feel like at this point, Nixon is literally Tom from Tom and Jerry. Jerry the mouse is always outsmarting <laughs> the cat without even trying it, and Nixon is so frustrated. Like He's literally making every bad mistake he possibly can. Yes, like Roadrunner and Coyote. Roadrunner's exactly. just out there running around doing his thing. Coyote's trying to catch him, but he just keeps fucking up. Like, yeah, exactly. So I also should mention that on that fateful night uh, when Nixon came into the building, he actually re-injured that same knee, causing him a great deal of pain and discomfort. Uh, it actually showed up on his face during the debate. Even though he had re-injured that knee, he still refused to call a rain check and postpone the debate. Well, I think this might be the real indication why he did not make it on his football team to injury prone. Yes, quite injury prone. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get into it a little bit. Well, a little bit later, but yeah, um, he was very clumsy, a very unathletic. Uh, there's actually a lot of funny stories about him dropping pens also, whenever he had to put a pin 
on like a returning soldier from the war they basically had to fix the device fix a little clip device to the pins because he kept stabbing the soldiers with pins very clumsy (laughs) he's making sure they weren't a commie yeah exactly commies don't bleed so oh yep you bled you're good (laughs) now the next day kennedy of course, pulled ahead of Nixon in the national polls with Nixon's vice presidential candidate, Henry Cabot Lodge, reportedly having very harsh words for his running mate, saying that that son of a bitch just lost us the election. Now, Lodge had actually watched that debate on television, and it should be also mentioned that Lyndon B. Johnson, Kennedy's future VP, also thought that his running mate had lost the debates though the old school Johnson had only listened to the debate on the radio rather than watching it on television. Gotcha. Okay, LBJ. Well, we kind of know LBJ, I don't think, really liked Kennedy all that much. No, I mean, Kennedy had just beaten Lyndon Johnson in the primaries. Uh, It was very obvious to Johnson at this time that Bobby was taking more and more of the kind of spotlight in the future administration too, like anything that would come of this. Johnson, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure like when he started to feel like he was being shut out, but definitely it was right away during the presidency that he knew that his vice presidency wouldn't be as monumental as Nixon's had been. Gotcha, okay. Now, though it wasn't the only debate, and as for the last three debates that Nixon and Kennedy had, Nixon would actually do much better. He would be a lot better prepared and, of course, more well-rested because that was the biggest problem was all of the hospital stays and the long trips. Most importantly, he would be camera ready. However, the first one of the four proved to be the most consequential as the amount of people that would watch the next three debates would drop by about an average of 20 million viewers apiece, below the 50 million mark. Uh, it also appears that the American people had made up their minds during the first debate, as Kennedy would go on to win the 1960 presidential election, though controversially, I might add. Oh, okay. What's controversial about it, Phil? Well, so the 1960 presidential election, Kennedy barely won the popular vote. He got 49.7%. This was to Nixon's 49.6%, with a total of about 118,000 votes more nationally than his opponent, Nixon, out of the total of nearly 69 million votes. The controversy comes with the Electoral College, though. So Kennedy only won the swing state of Illinois by 8,800 votes. He actually only won Texas by 40,000 votes. Now, this one's kind of obvious, but Texas is the home state of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, He has a lot of political power there and a lot of political allies. Most importantly, George Parr, who is very important in his home district. In Illinois, Kennedy had a supporter. Uh, This was Chicago Mayor Richard Daley. He held extremely tight control over Cook County political machine and is suspected of rigging the election in Kennedy's favor. Okay. All right. Well, I mean... We know Chicago can be <laughs> ripe <laughs> yeah. with corruption, uh, so there's that. Yeah, also there are conspiracy theories that Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, was kind of in tight with the mob 
and it may have helped sway the Chicago election. They might have had a hand in it, too. That's only like the conspiracy theory, though. Gotcha. Okay. Now, Kennedy had won the Electoral College 303 votes to 219. However, if Texas and Illinois would have swung the other way, Nixon would have taken the Electoral College 270 to 252, just barely getting enough Electoral College votes to win. Now, Nixon did hold off on accepting defeat. Uh, He would have really been justified in challenging the vote counts in those two states. However, he opted instead to accept the result. This was mostly just to preserve national unity, though he would carry extremely bad feelings about this possibly fraudulent election uh, into his future protocol campaigns. Also, really never wanting to be cheated again. Gotcha. Okay. It's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, we don't know if uh, there could have been cheating there or whatever, but let's say theoretically there isn't. This is probably the last time someone, the the loser, I guess, didn't throw a giant fit about it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, Gore, Bush, there was a huge thing about Florida there. Yeah. There was, I would say... I don't remember, did did Hillary Clinton, did she challenge that election at all? I don't think she not, did. Not, I mean, no, not, not a lot. Yeah, I know there was a huge challenge, of course, in this last 2020 election. Obviously, everyone knows that. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's literally still going on, Phil. Yeah, I know. In in Arizona, especially. He's, oh, you can hear it on news and they're well, they're out in some cabin in the woods, you know, trying to count votes now as we speak, probably still. Ah, but. Okay. All them secret Antifa votes. Are. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the ones from China. All the ones on bamboo paper from China. <laughs> no, I think that's over by now. But in nineteen sixty two, the California Republican Party felt confident that they could actually win back the governorship of the state away from the one-term incumbent Democratic governor, Pat Brown. They would actually ask Richard Nixon to run against him, hoping that his carrying the state against Kennedy in 1960 would translate into a win for Nixon and the GOP. Now, even though Nixon led Brown for most of the entire race, he even had a slight lead over him the day of. Brown actually made up a lot of ground throughout the campaign and upset Nixon in stunning defeat, winning by just over 5% of the vote. So he's got back-to-back defeats here. Yes. it Like, Nixon really, this is the first time he's had a defeat. They kind of make the joke that this is the first time he's been defeated in an election since running for high school student body president. Yeah. So it's I, been I quite a minute. He's not taking it very well, then, I imagine. No, yeah, I doubt Nixon takes defeat very well at all. Mm. So Nixon, exhausted by the taxing campaign, and of course the back-to-back losses, lashed out at the hundred or so reporters covering his November 7th press conference. This press conference would be dubbed the last press conference. This is where Nixon actually blamed the press for standing against him, telling them that he was retiring from politics and this is one of his most famous quotes. You don't have Nick, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore because gentlemen, this is my last press conference. 
uh, referencing the press's constant badgering of his political dealings of the past campaign donations. And uh, apparently he had a run in or some problems with the John Birch Society. The fuck is the John Birch Society? So the John Birch Society actually was kind of like a an early Tea Party kind of movement. Uh, the John Birch Society supported women in government, opposed wealth distribution, and economic interventionalism. Huh. Okay. So, and, so it's kind of like a more hardcore uh, conservatism, I guess? Well, it would have rallied against kind of what FDR was doing during the Great Depression with his New Deal and all the wealth distribution. So apparently... Richard Nixon actually spoke out against the John Birch Society and because they were so far right, uh, he was a centrist. So he kind of had views that were a little bit to the left and views a little bit to the right. A lot of Republicans thought that he wasn't conservative. Like a lot of Republican conservatives thought he wasn't conservative enough. So this was a far right conservative group. Gotcha. Okay. All right. We probably still have the John Birch Society. It just goes by a different name. Yeah, there's actually, well, kind of like one of the articles I was reading was kind of, you know, linked them to like a QAnon is a modern day John Birch Society. Ah, okay. But it's kind of a stretch because they have a weird, you know, it's it's not. So I kind of thought it was more teabag than, you know, QAnon. Gotcha. Okay. The statement didn't go over very well with the media and the press were reporting on his political obituaries in the newspapers and on television across the country, though it would not be the last that America would hear from old Dick Nixon, as after a six-year stint practicing law in New York, Nixon would return to politics. He would actually make a very important speech at a retreat, uh, mostly for the elite just outside of San Francisco, California, in 1967. You might have heard of this. It's called Bohemian Grove. Oh, I've heard of it, all right. Apparently, there's yes. a lot of... Uh... Butt stuff going on there. Yeah. Yep. A lot of uh, old men fucking each other, apparently. Oh, you know, yeah. Allegedly. So, yeah, apparently he made a very important speech. And the next year he was elected president. So he kind of came out of nowhere to pick this up. Okay. Now, once again, running for president. Uh, now, with the apparent backing, like we just mentioned, of Barry Satiro and a freshly hatched. Jeff Bezos on his side. Uh, this time it was the pivotal 1968 presidential election, which saw Richard Nixon defeat the Democratic candidate, Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey of Minnesota fame, and the segregationist candidate, George Wallace, after the blockbuster announcement made by LBJ that he would not be seeking re-election in 1968. Also happened that cycle was the shocking assassination of Robert Kennedy that summer at the hands of Sirhan Sirhan. Unless, of course, you're one of the many Americans that subscribe to the theory that it was actually Ted Cruz's father. I'm. It's Ted Cruz's father. Um. Also, I see what you, you said here about Democratic candidates. Um, I don't know if you know, obviously... LBJ set in motion a lot of the civil rights. Um, did the Democrats, were these the Dick, Dixiecrats here? Hubert oh, H. This, Humphrey? No. So the the Dixiecrats were actually voting for George Wallace. Okay. Okay. I see. For some reason, I read that as um, that was his uh, vice president nominee. Hubert Humphrey's vice president nominee was George Wallace. 
No, sorry. I might have said that wrong. So he went up against the Democratic candidate, which was at the time the vice president. He was LBJ's vice president, Hubert H. Humphrey. There was also a third man running uh, main contender, I guess you could say, running in this election segregationist candidate george wallace so like you were talking about the dixiecrats broke away what happened is a lot of the these southern states went to george wallace and some of those southern states they didn't even put hubert humphrey on the the ballots yikes okay and obviously yeah. we know i i'm guessing they didn't start merging into the modern day conservative party until well after Nixon's time. Um, this is right. this is kind of one of those, uh, the dominoes that fell, which kind of switched it from Republican in the big cities in the North to Democrats in the big cities in the North and Republicans in the South. This is kind of where it really like switched was all of the stuff that's going on during the uh, 60s and 70s. Yeah, don't get, don't get it twisted though. Uh, Nixon... He's on tape. I don't know if you're going to bring it up about saying some very uh, mean things about black people. Yes, he said a lot of very mean things about a lot of everybody. So okay. he he did not like non-mainstream groups. You can say that. Okay. So any kind of civil rights, any kind of like feminism, uh, gay rights, and like uh, African-American rights, any kind of anything he did not like is very much, you know, the 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 suit and tie mainstream. Gotcha. Situation. OK. Yes. After winning the presidency in 1968, Nixon's hatred for the media wouldn't subside in the slightest, even though he was actually heavily endorsed by most of the newspapers in the country during the 1968 election even though he had been heavily endorsed by most of the newspapers in the country during the 68 election. Uh, I read it was about 80% of the newspapers were on his side. They even called his press conferences that he was giving tour de forces. Before Nixon, former presidents and administrations called the news media the press and understood that the press really could be an important part of winning over public opinion to their side. And they were very important about like informing the American people of what's going on. However, Nixon began referring to members of the news media as the media, a term which he considered really just ominous and less favorable than the old, the press. Can I just say this controversial statement? I'm seeing a lot of parallels between him and... <laughs> the uh, the last president. Yeah, I mean, there is a certain uh, playbook, but Nixon really did kind of lay the groundwork for all of this. Really, though, too, Nixon did have his vice president, Spiro Agnew, go out and give speeches talking about how the media was kind of like this, how they were separating themselves from the American people, kind of becoming the elite. So there was like kind of the ideas being pushed around that the news media were elitist even back then. Yikes. Sometimes uh, some things just never change, do they? Yeah. Now, according to a May 1973 New York Times paper, there was actually reported that phone wiretaps had been ordered on reporters from three different newspapers, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Sunday Times of London starting during the summer of 1969. 
These wiretaps were verbally ordered by Attorney General John N. Mitchell through FBI head J. Edgar Hoover, though it was reported that Hoover actually wanted written confirmation for the wiretaps. When he did get that written confirmation, he didn't actually personally sign those orders. Now, at the time, only an order from the Attorney General was needed for the installation of phone wiretaps on Americans. They didn't yet need a court order. Yikes. Okay. So I guess this is more of a loophole thing, huh? Yeah, kind of. It's it's one of those deals where when a new technology kind of comes up and it's a little bit slow getting, uh, you know, figuring out how constitutional it is to wiretap phone calls. Right, right. I think it's like that situation is what happened. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, this was kind of in like the waning days of the Hoover era. So I don't know if he was actually still, you know, like kind of, you know, doing all the... He was very important during the, you know, like 40s, 50s, 60s with keeping taps on pretty much everybody. So I'm kind of... I don't know exactly why he would have a problem wiretapping anybody. It's kind of weird in my mind because everything we hear about Hoover is he basically tapped everybody's phone. He kind of he's like Nixon. He saw enemies everywhere kind of deal. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That is interesting. Yeah. Hoover is also known for other odd behavior, too. But yeah, it's not it's not his uh, his episode. So <laughs> we'll go into that. Now, the reason given for the wiretaps was that the journalists had actually reported on sensitive or classified information that had been leaked. Uh, It was involved with the strategic strategic arms limitation talks between the U.S. and Russia. Also reporting that one of their sources claimed that one of the newsmen had been spying for the Viet Cong. Okay, that feels like a stretch to me. Yeah, it's it's one of those deals where kind of like we were talking about last episode where they were kind of hunting for communists everywhere. Now they're kind of hunting for these leakers. They're hunting for these spies. And that's kind of how Nixon changed. He wasn't he was no longer hunting for communists anymore. He was hunting for leakers. And the main place he was looking was government officials and journalists. Kind of like the link there. And that would actually come back in the big way. Everyone's pretty, you know, knows about Deep Throat. Yeah, so that was probably the yeah. most famous leaker. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. His uh, his paranoia yeah. is rising. He's looking for enemies everywhere, like he said. Yes, definitely. Yeah, the chickens would really come home to roost on that one. So <laughs> now I should also mention that journalists weren't the only ones targeted by the Nixon campaign, as the Times also reported on many unknown government officials being spied on during the same time period. This included one that we do know about, Dr. Morton Halperin. He was a member of the staff of the National Security Council in September 1971. Now, mysteriously, the records and recordings from the wiretaps were all lost by the FBI, with the exception of Dr. Halperin. Okay, so what is, did he say, did they catch him saying something important or what? So Dr. Hallerpin was actually a government official. He was instrumental in writing up the Pentagon Papers, which was kind of a uh, now infamous study on like the progress of the Vietnam War. Uh, he was also, during the investigation, kind of like suspect number one on who leaked the Pentagon Papers. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Um, 
All right. I guess they would want to kind of uh, find out what he's got to say, right? Yeah, definitely. They're wiretapping his phone. Apparently on one of the lists of Nixon's enemies, he was number eight. I read. So number eight. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, when you said Dr. Martin, all I could think about is like the salt guy. The salt guy? Yeah. yeah. I think uh I think one of the characters on Family Guy, the guy who owns the drugstore, is named Morton. Yeah, more yep, yep. The Morton. uh the dorky guy. Yeah, the dorky guy. Yeah. <laughs> Now, because of his hatred of the media, Nixon would tell his vice president, Spiro Agnew, to go out and, like I mentioned before, make speeches to make attacks against the media, claiming that they were part of the unelected elite, whom had the ability to decide what 40 to 50 million Americans will learn of that day's events in the nation and the world. So basically, you're, I mean, Nixon is kind of sending these, his hatchet men sending these men out to go do his bidding. Right. I bet Trump wishes uh, Mike Pence would have did this instead of just telling people how they shouldn't wear condoms when they have sex. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. How, uh, you know, a nice glass of warm milk and a bowl of oatmeal is better than premarital sex any day, kids. <laughs> that Pornhub, that's some nasty shit, kids. You get, you get on there, you'll never be able to close it. <laughs> Uh, in 1971, journalist Stuart Lurie wrote an article for the Los Angeles Times about President Nixon, basically how Nixon was writing off expenses from the maintenance of his California vacation home in San Clemente, California, nicknamed the West White House, and his Florida vacation home in Key Biscane, which actually Key Biscane, that's going to become very vital uh, at the end of this. So remember that Florida home in the, for the end of this. Okay. Now it costed taxpayers tens of thousand dollars a year and totaled more than $218,000 between the years of 1969 and 1972. Now, after this article came out, Stuart Laurie would find out that his actual press pass, which would get you into the famous White House press conferences, revoked. Wow. Okay. Yes. Uh, yikes. I'm a, yikes. Okay. I guess uh, Nixon definitely does not like people shit talking him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's at the time it was unheard of to not allow a member of the press, especially someone as distinguished as Stuart Laurie, into the White House press conferences. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I I saw a modern version of this kind of, <laughs> if you were to watch, it was like last year when they're doing Trump's press conferences and you could yes. watch like him or his, uh, who's the lady who like answers the questions for the president, like the press secretary oh, or the whatever. the press secretary. I forgot her name, but yeah. Yeah. The, uh, they, the wiry one. Yeah. They, she would only pick the news networks that would give him a positive <laughs> feedback. Yes. So she was only picking like Newsmax and um one of I can't was it OAN. I can't remember what it stands for, but uh it's yeah. really towards the end I was gonna say towards the end they wouldn't even give Fox News a chance to no. answer a question too, if I remember correctly. Too liberal. Fox News too liberal. is too liberal. Definitely. Yeah I do remember the parallels being being made during that time. So now, of course, if we are talking about Nixon's enemies in the media, we have to mention Washington Post reporters Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who reported on the Watergate scandal 
and the now infamous break-in of the Democratic National Committee offices in June of 1972. Now, they would actually get much of their information from the then-anonymous source known only as Deep Throat. Real question is, obviously, we're pretty sure what his voice sounds like, but um, I'm pretty sure Deep Throat would have been a really hot film right around this time. Do you think he took... His uh, his name after he saw that uh, famous, uh, what's her name? What's her name? Lindsay Loveless or Laura Loveless? Yeah, so it was actually it definitely was taken from that movie. That movie had just come out. Uh, it was that was one of the like the biggest pornographic films of all time, and it was in theaters. Like you could actually go watch it. I mean, they were you know mob control. You obviously had to be you know. They were like heavily age. they were heavily mob controlled too. Uh, I watched a documentary about it. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen that one too. Yeah. It was yeah, very big movie back then. Very very influential uh, at that time. Right. Now, the initial break-in was actually a success and it involved the stealing of documents and tapping of the phones at the Democratic offices. However, it was the return trip that they had made to fix some of the original wiretaps that had gotten the infiltrators caught. Now, the break-in was masterminded by G. Gordon Liddy. He was the finance counsel for the Committee for the Re-election of the President and given the green light by White House counsel John Dean and Attorney General John Mitchell, who actually we previously mentioned being involved with those wiretaps. Yikes. Okay, so I'm guessing what really happened here... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you remember the scene? I can't remember if it's from Alien or Aliens where they see all the eggs laying yes. there and then the little face huggers come out. I'm assuming these two gentlemen stumbled upon the Democratic reptilian eggs and they accidentally stepped on a few of them. They started to hatch. Barry Satira was born. Things is that what is that how they got caught? Possibly. I can imagine yeah, I can imagine that happening. I would have thought that it would have been Barry Satira warming the eggs. <laughs> like under his large you know, reptilian spider body. But yes, okay. <laughs> now after Liddy and his accomplices who had perpetrated the break-in were caught and arrested, the Nixon the Nixon White House would go completely on the defensive, claiming that they had no involvement with the break-in, though Bernstein and Woodward kept on the story very vigilantly. Uh, they had actually found a source of leaked information. This was Deputy Director of the FBI, William Mark Felt Sr., who in June of 2005 outed himself as the high-level leaker, known only as Deep Throat. Um, okay, so a lot of people did confess to being Deep Throat. Do you believe it was him? Yeah, I think it's pretty much confirmed that it was him. So okay. actually, before 2005, a lot of people thought that it was Pat Buchanan. So a lot of people were pretty disappointed when it came out that it was William Mark Felt, I remember. Gotcha. Okay. The Nixon White House fought back vehemently against the reports, claiming that the newsmen were taking part in a witch hunt against the administration, also claiming that they were not truthful in their reporting on any connection between the committee to re-elect the president and the Nixon administration. Uh, this actually worked well enough to get Nixon re-elected in 1972. Wow, okay. So this this took quite a while before it kind of like bit him in the ass, I guess. Yes. So, well, I mean, 
1972 is when the break-in happened. He wasn't actually resigned from he didn't actually resign from office until August 1974. So it was a two-year process from the time of the break-in to the time of the resignation, over two years. Gotcha. Okay. Now, as uh, we mentioned before, Deep Throat, whose nickname was taken from the popular pornographic film, which debuted in the early 1970s, actually, while in office at his position, saw the connection between the community and the administration. He felt as if he really wouldn't be able to affect any real justice or action inside of his role as deputy director of the FBI and decided to meet with the two young reporters a total of 17 times. This was either by phone or in person in a parking garage in Virginia, which is now, I mean, for 50 years, you've been seen whenever there's like a a document drop off or anything, they always meet in a, like a dark parking garage. This yeah. is kind of where that image came from. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah, there uh, was that, a lot kind of people of actually trying to figure out who Deep Throat was. So. <laughs> that's kind of funny, actually. Search yeah. every parking garage in the state. <laughs> we need to find Deep Throat. <laughs> exactly. Now, feeding them damning information against the administration, they also shed light on the Nixon cover-up. One thing that I should also really mention is whenever these men who had been arrested in the break-in would uh, basically be interrogated they would always have kind of these high level attorneys it didn't seem quite right uh this committee to re-elect the president really shouldn't have had these white house attorneys there and he also felt uh, that the information from these interrogations was being fed back to the white house so that's another reason why he kind of like turned tail and started leaking gotcha okay that makes sense now, now, eventually, the House decided to open impeachment investigations against the president. And after the public finally gained access to the now infamous White House tapes, which impl- implicated Nixon in the cover-up, on August 8, 1974, Richard Milhouse Nixon would announce to the American people that he would resign as the president of the United States. This would end an over two-year battle to keep his part of the cover-up secrets. He would leave the presidency to his new VP, Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford actually became VP after Spiro Agnew was implicated in some fraud allegations and had to leave the VP office. Gerald Ford was kind of known as a moderate, and he was the only one that the Democrats would vote for like to because a new VP would have to be voted for in the Congress. So he was the only one that they would actually allow in to the VP office just because of his moderate views and everybody kind of liked him. He was a, you know, an amicable guy. So interesting. Okay. So yeah. Nixon, man, he's, he doesn't have anything good going on for him. His VP got busted for fraud. Uh, yes. And now he is for, he's quitting basically. So he doesn't have to have to get impeached. More or less. Yeah. So really one of the one of the big things about the impeachment uh, proceedings, why they went forward was because he didn't allow those tapes to be accessed by Congress. That's kind of the big obstruction charge that led to the impeachment. So it wasn't as much the cover up that got him. It was the obstruction. He eventually would have been impeached. They would have kind of. They would have they would have like sub sludged up all of this dirt on Nixon and gotten him for pretty much anything they could. 
Well, if he was obstructing the tapes, then you'd assume there'd probably be something pretty damning on them, yeah? Yes. And, I mean, the thing is, the Nixon tapes, there was so much... There was a shit ton of hours of audio recorded on those tapes. So there was a lot of people going through them. Uh, I'm not even sure if they actually went through all of them up until the point when he was taken out of office. But there was also a, a short amount of time that was deleted from those tapes. And it's kind of thought that the big smoking gun that would implicate him in like the real big crimes that he's alleged to have done were on those tapes. Probably were if they were deleted. No, I mean, just from what you've said already, he will do anything to cover his tracks. Yeah, definitely. If there was proof that he was using the CIA, IRS, FBI to kind of take down his personal enemies, like using the Office of Presidency like that, I mean, definitely it would have been huge if that was in, you know, that amount, the those tapes that were deleted. But who knows? No one knows what's on those tapes. So gotcha. Yeah. Now, for the past two episodes, I've linked Nixon's early years of ambition, along with his loathing for his middle class lifestyle, with feelings of personal slights by opponents, both politically and in the news media, along with his mistrust of anyone not considered in the mainstream of American society. With the reasoning for his eventual demise and his resignation in 1974. However, there are some theories that have risen in the past few decades which aim to explain Richard Nixon's odd change in personality and his feelings that enemies were all around him. This reason was an addiction to prescription drugs and alcohol. Interesting. I had never heard this before, but then again, you know, 70s, late 60s, 70s wouldn't surprise me. Yes, definitely. So it is true that Nixon was born and raised a Quaker, and Nixon supporters, after the allegations of drug use were made, claimed that the former president would barely even take the medication that had been prescribed to him by a doctor, let alone abuse random drugs. Now, this was in response to a January 2000 book, The Arrogance of Power, The Secret World of Richard Nixon by Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. Now, this book portrays Nixon as a mentally unstable leader who abused alcohol and prescription drugs, including barbiturates, speed, and sleeping pills, and as a result, made rash decisions, which carried dire consequences. These included attacks against perceived enemies both in politics and in the media, the Saturday Night Massacre, the use of the FBI, CIA, and the IRS to attack said enemies, and of course, counterculture groups. Also, international actions that he may have taken, including the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, the attempted assassination of against Fidel Castro, and the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, and all the problems that that caused. Okay, so obviously I know most of these. Um, what the hell is the Saturday Night Massacre, Phil? So basically, the Saturday Night Massacre was... One night when a lot of shit went down in the Nixon White House. So there was a special prosecutor. His name was Archibald Cox. He was actually appointed to investigate all of the things that were going on. Now, President Nixon actually ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Archibald Cox. Now, when Richardson refused, he resigned immediately. 
Nixon then ordered Deputy Attorney General William Ruckshaus to fire Cox. Now, he also refused, and he resigned. Nixon then ordered the third most senior official at the Justice Department, Solicitor General Robert Bork, to fire Cox. Uh, He actually did, and he did this at the behest of Elliot Richardson and William Ruckleshaw. He was basically there just to kind of like watch over things at the department, just to keep it afloat because it needed a head. And they were getting down to the bare bones. This is basically just him telling people to fire people. They refuse to fire people. Then they resign. Yes, this happened three times where, well, twice where Nixon told the attorney general to fire this special prosecutor. They refused and then they quit. You know, uh, I'm just going to throw this out there, Phil. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds a hell of a lot like um, the last president. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There has also been, you know, parallels to that. There's a lot of parallels drawn between Nixon and Trump. I didn't want to mention it all because this is about Nixon. Yeah, right, right, right. So special prosecutor Robert Mueller, uh, there was also worry that Trump would try to fire him. And the attorney generals at this time said that they would have done the same thing. They would have resigned rather than fire special prosecutor Robert Mueller. So it's basically the same thing. But in this book, they claim that Saturday Night Massacre was because Richard Nixon was on a, uh, a mix of alcohol and prescription drugs. And this caused him to be irrational and to just fire Archibald on a Saturday night. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we know Barbichwitz. Uh, quite popular during this time. I would have took Nixon, if he was a drug addict, to be, judging by like all the traveling and shit he does, I figured he'd be a speed guy. Yeah, well, that was one of the one of the drugs that the book mentioned. So barbiturates, speed, and sleeping pills. Okay. Which I mean, if you're taking speed, you need sleeping pills to come down. Right. So, yeah, the allegations of drug use. In the book, they actually claim that it started, his drug use started during his days in Congress in the 40s. Okay, all right. Yeah, you got to remember too, I mean, think about how, we we mentioned how ambitious and you know hardworking Nixon was when he was in school. Now imagine his early years in Congress. He must have just worked like a demon. So the idea of him taking, you know, amphetamines were pretty, pretty new, uh, post-World War II. So the idea of him finding about out about these, something that could make you work even harder. It's not hard to imagine that he would take those. Though it is all allegedly and supposedly because well, there's no real proof that he had this huge prescription drug problem. Well, I mean, if you consider that kids nowadays, like let's say professional Yu-Gi-Oh players or Pokemon, the card game players are willing to pop Adderall to yes. keep their game up. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be abnormal for a president or aspiring president to be popping whatever they can get their hand. I'm assuming a lot of these drugs are just over the counter at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly sure if you're, you know, if you're a big time person, maybe you get them from just, you know, you have your sources or whatnot. I don't know exactly how regulated or restricted these drugs would have been back in the 40s. I mean, obviously a lot more than they are now or a lot less than they are now. So, yeah, I think they had speed in one some form of some form or another 
You could like literally for us go to Walgreens and pick it up for you and your buddies or whatever. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, I was also going to mention. So it might have been that he saw the the Saturday Night Massacre was because he saw his impeachment trial coming. So October 20th, 1973 was the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, His impeachment process actually began 10 days later on October 30th, 1973. So that might have been the reason. It might have been leaked to him that the impeachment process was going to begin. Yeah, I mean, that probably is more plausible. Yes, definitely. Yeah, just basically he found out something and reacted. Yeah. Kind of like Nixon's famous for. Yeah. Just kind of having these gut reactions and, you know, maybe even forgetting that he does it later or not realizing that people are going to take him seriously. Well, kind of those deals. Yep. Yep. Uh, Again, sounds a lot like uh, Mr. Trump, but uh, somebody else. Yes. We'll just say somebody else from now on. Yeah. Sounds like somebody else. Another topic that the book brings up is that Richard Nixon's drug use and mental instability caused him to actually abuse his wife, Pat. Now, other sources corroborating this abuse of the first lady is Seymour Hirsch. Uh, He was a reporter for The New Yorker. Uh, He actually claimed that he regrettably didn't report on an incident that he had heard of. Uh, This was when Pat Nixon had went to the hospital, claiming that Richard Nixon had abused her. Uh, This is on August 9th, 1974, the same day that Nixon had resigned from office. Jesus. Okay. So I don't know about this because I don't really like, I don't don't know. From your first episode, it seems like Pat didn't barely want anything to do with him anyway. But yeah, there was kind of a weird thing around this time period where it's like more Domestic abuse is like widely accepted for some reason. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was uh, unspoken, like not spoken about, especially. And uh, that's what the reporter Seymour Hirsch said that at the time, it's just something that really you didn't talk about or wasn't like reported on. He actually claimed that I, well, I read an article where he claimed that he didn't think it was a crime back then. Wow. A like fucking domestic violence. A yeah. D- domestic. That's how bad it is. Jesus. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, we've made leaps and bounds uh, since this time period, but it's still nowhere where it needs to be. But um, OK, so does he have any like proof or is it just kind it, of it's mostly just kind of hearsay stories? OK, Um He also mentioned stories that he had heard from other reporters and from Nixon aides uh, at times when people were around the couple and people had to pull Richard Nixon off of Pat to stop him from beating and kicking her. Uh, There was another time in 1962, supposedly when Nixon had given Pat a black eye, uh, she had actually threatened him to leave him supposedly during that time. Damn. Yeah. This is all, uh, it wasn't reported on. There's key witnesses kind of never really tell their story. So it's all kind of allegations and suspicions. Stuff right. that come out had come out long after, even after her death in 1993. I just realized something. When uh, you keep saying Nixon aides, you know, and yes. all I can think about is like Nixon aid is literally something you would put on your asshole if you want hemorrhoids (laughs) like it literally gives you hemorrhoids 
Okay. I did not know that, but <laughs> I don't <laughs> That's just what I envision a Nixonade would do. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's our, sorry. New, it's our new segment, Butt Stuff with Cody. So, <laughs> there we go. So not only was there the allegations of physical abuse, also there were many allegations of emotional abuse, as the relationship between Pat and Dick Nixon was legendary for its coldness during their years in the White House, with it being said that Nixon would go out of his way to ignore and freeze out his wife, with the two never really showing any affection towards each other while he was the president. There's also a famous story of a rally in Nashville in March of 1974. The audience started singing happy birthday to Pat Nixon. She walked over to embrace her husband. In turn, Dick Nixon completely turned away from her, showing her his back. Oh, Jesus. Okay. All right. This is like colder than fucking Tom Cruise and his wife. God damn. Um, Definitely. Y- yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't know why that I've. They probably don't even have a video of that, and it makes me cringe. Yeah, I mean, there's also stories they would when they flew on Air Force One together. They would sit nowhere near each other. He would eat dinner alone most nights uh, when he would go on vacation. He wouldn't take her along. And if she did come along, she would stay at a different place. She wouldn't even stay at their vacation home in Florida when they went there. Do you think their relationship was just like for appearances then? I I'm not sure if it was meant to be. I have a uh, I told you I was going to end it with a like a theory of mine kind of after reading all this stuff. I kind of came up with a theory, but definitely during this time, it seems like they stayed together for show. And they were having, if they were having problems, they definitely weren't getting out of the marriage because they needed to keep it up for like the presidency and the public. So, and gotcha. Dick Nixon's image, supposedly. Okay. All right. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all allegations. Uh, I should also mention that Trisha Nixon Cox, Richard and Pat Nixon's daughter, denies the accusations of physical abuse and insisting that her father never struck her mother. So the daughter of the two claim that these allegations are false. Okay. If I I had to lean one way or the other, I would say he might not have been physically abusive. I could see emotionally. Well, it's the emotional abuse was kind of evident for everyone to see. There were, there were stories about reporters just trying to find a little bit of affection shown from Richard Nixon to his wife. And they said they just never saw it. They never saw any of them just having a nice little conversation or holding, you know, holding hands. I mean, he was notoriously not a touchy-feely person in public. He didn't like to show his emotions, let's just say. So... Maybe yeah. that's what it was. Maybe it's just a thing where he showed all of his affection in private. That could also be it, too. Certainly could be. Now, for this last part of the series, uh, I just mentioned it. I did come up with a little theory that I have about Richard Nixon. Not sure how fun it is. It's kind of <laughs> makes you a little sad, actually. So it attempts to explain why he acted like the way that he did and went to such great lengths to achieve greatness. Okay, I am looking forward to this. So Nixon, from the time that he was a little boy growing up in California, I believe hated himself and everything that he was. I believe that he fought his whole life to change what he saw in the mirror. 
Now, he idolized strong men and also attempted to play football very poorly, I might add, and stuck with it. I believe that this is because he saw himself as meek, and that's something he wanted to change. He also joined pretty much every single group that he came across. I don't believe that he actually wanted to join these groups, but I do think that he didn't want to be seen as completely friendless and alone all the time. He also joined the theater and debate. Uh, This was pretty much, I think, because he hated the way that he acted in front of others, the way that he spoke, and he wanted to change all of these things. And he thought that, of course, these things would help him along the way. Uh, Most importantly, he really, like I mentioned before, during school, he didn't date. He didn't really talk to many women. In his life, he pursued one woman. This was to the point of stalking. Uh, I believe that it's because he thought that a future congressman and a future president needed to be seen with a beautiful woman on his arm. Okay, let's just say the last part. He never actually loved his wife. He just loved the image, or he wanted to have the image of having a wife. Of having a wife and a family. Okay. All right. I mean, I, I could see that. So why is he, what is his ultimate goal then for doing all of this, Phil? All right. So from the research that I did over the past two weeks, reading all the stories about the cold nature of Richard and Pat Nixon, I came up with a theory that after college, Richard Nixon realized that he needed a woman in his life because of his future ambitions towards public office and what he wanted really was eventual presidency. You got to think, though, a presidential candidate doesn't seem very electable at that time unless he has a first lady on his arm. Now, because of this, I think that he pursued Pat as ambitiously as he did any other venture in his life that had come before. He really, I think, found Pat kind of like a perfect show wife. Outside of just Nixon, I think with a lot of other people in office or whatever, you know, not necessarily just the president, but in other positions of power, I actually do kind of subscribe to the belief that uh, they have a lot of fake marriages uh, or marriages for show. So I could definitely see Richard Nixon doing this. I would love to know how Pat felt about that whole scenario. She was just there for show. Did she, was she okay with that? If that is the, the thing, I guess. Yeah, that's just a theory that I came up with that his whole relationship from the start Uh, why he kind of pursued her so ambitiously is just something that he was trying to achieve. And then once he kind of locked, locked her down and got into the presidency, that's kind of why he, his nature turned cold. Sort of that situation. Kind of like he was past it. Like when he was past football or when he was past other things kind of deal. Right. Yeah. I I don't know. He's a, uh, he's a tricky fella to figure out because like he, (laughs) I think we joked about it on the first episode where you said he's like kind of has the same qualities as a serial killer probably would have. That's um, kind of where I was thinking. Okay. Was a little bit like kind of forming this perfect show life around himself. A little BTK style type thing going on there. Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, he obviously, well, who knows? He most likely didn't kill anyone. But, most likely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it is kind of, he does have this mentality of, you know, trying to gain perfection, trying to make himself into the best possible Richard Nixon he can be. So I can see that kind of 
I mean, it's just a little crazy theory that I had. I just wanted to throw it in there, but I like it. I I dig it. I think, uh, I don't know. It's really interesting. Like, obviously you can be a sociopath or psychopath without actually, uh, being a murderer. Maybe that's, maybe that's what he was. Maybe he just could not experience love like, uh, you know, other people can. And he just, the only way he could, like you're saying, the only way he could view Pat is by viewing her as a necessary vessel for his ambition. Yeah, kind of like another, like one of the many achievements on his list of achievements kind of deal. Yeah. Like the next step is he finished high school, number one in his class. Next step, go to college, you know, do great things there, play football. Next step, go to Duke. You know, all he did at Duke was study, do his little clubs, do theater, do all of that. He basically just, he didn't really even have a social life at all. And then what came up next? Well, now it's time to start a, you know, find a wife and start a family, do that next. And then, you know, kind of like that deal. So, yeah. Yeah. Hey, you didn't really mention it, but did he, did he actually have like friends in school? Like, or I shouldn't even say in school. Cause I think you did mention he didn't really, um, like when he was working as an attorney after he graduated, uh, from Duke, right. Or working yes. in law, like he had to have coworkers. Like, yes. I, I, what the hell did they say about him? Or, or I, I, I don't know if you know. So a lot of the people I kind of found, they really, I don't, it's kind of hard to find anyone who called himself his friend. He actually did have a longtime friend that I wasn't really going to mention. Uh, I can mention him a little bit. So the guy's name was B.B. Rebozo. He had a very good friend uh, down in Florida. Okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, apparently there are allegations that they were a little bit more than friends and the affection that Richard Nixon never showed his wife. Uh, he actually showed to BB Raposo. He on t- at times they were caught holding hands or, you know, they had their arms around each other, kind of one of those deals, but that's all kind of suspicion and allegation. So, well, um, during this time, obviously, uh, homosexuality was, frowned upon um and i don't know i guess i guess that could make sense if he was he just wanted to be gay but he hated himself for being a gay man i mean that yeah. does happen too and well then if you- that's one of the if that's one of the things he hated himself for he definitely did hate the uh like homosexuals and their movement which was going on at the time he was also wiretapping them too so well yeah. see here's the thing if you're sometimes this like weird hatred that goes on in your mind can like I don't know it can do some fucked up shit so I I don't know he that Nixon's such a weird character and it's I know we're not here to talk about him but literally Donald Trump is like <laughs> Alpha Richard Nixon like honest to God um I don't know, even if we're being real here Trump's marriage kind of seems. <laughs> A little stage two. So, yeah. And (laughs) when you were reading that thing about in Tennessee, they were singing happy birthday to him. And Nixon like turned away. There's that famous video where Trump's trying to hold hands with Ivanka and she like quickly moves her hand out of the way. Yes. So there's. Yeah. There's many videos that are just like that. 
or times when he says something nice about her and she looks like she's about to vomit or goes in for a hug and she just kind of like barely touches him and moves away. Here's, the, the, here's, yeah, the, here's the other connection to that. Roger, Robert, is it Roger Stone? Uh, guy worked for Nixon and he worked for Trump. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then he was, he just got pardoned out of jail or something. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, it's the best person to get to work for you if people are making those, you know, connections, I guess. I don't know. Mm. It's it's one of those deals where I don't even, like Roger Stone, I'm not even very familiar with him. I just know that he kind of showed up on a lot of interview shows. I, I think he's a, um, I don't know, maybe we'll have to look into him one day. He's He's someone who, like, tells them how to navigate <laughs> the press, I think, kind of. Oh, okay, like so we... That. Um, he's like an aide or yeah. a gotcha. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Phil, what do you think? Any of these allegations against President Nixon, Do you are you leaning towards any of them? Well, obviously, like the cover-up and everything like that. But about the crazy stuff, I, I doubt that he was as big of a pill popper as the book says. I do think that he... I mean, obviously, I like that theory that I made up, but... I really, I, I mean, if you look at the funeral of his wife, Pat, uh, she died from cancer in 1993. He is visibly destroyed. He is openly bawling in front of like a crowd of people. And that is not something that Nixon would ever do. So he obviously did care for her enough to do that. I mean, if he, if he was a sociopath, possibly he could make himself cry like that. But I doubt that that kind of level of tears that's just you have to you know like he looked visibly destroyed yeah yeah okay something he had an emotion of some kind uh definitely yeah that was just a fun little theory from reading all of the crazy shit about him that i came up with i wanted to throw it in at the end something just to kind of top it off maybe the coldest towards her that everybody witnessed during that time was because of the extreme stress of the job and maybe the pending impeachment and all of that shit. I don't know. Maybe that did something. I don't know. It's hard to say, but, uh, now if he was finding enemies everywhere, maybe he saw her as one too. Who knows? You know? Yeah. I mean, maybe once he retired from the white house or whatever, you know, uh, quit kind of quit his political career. Maybe everything kind of calmed down. And then it was just kind of him and Pat. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a lot of people who report on the fact that she did not want him to go back into politics. She really didn't want him in politics at all, but he just kept having a calling to be president. So maybe they were tense about him going into politics, even though she didn't want him to go back in. Maybe that was the situation and it just, you know, boiled over the years into, you know, what it became, which was this emotionally distant, cold relationship. But yeah. Really, it's all of the players in that. They're all gone now. So it's kind of hard to you know figure that stuff out. Right. Yeah, we probably won't ever find out the answer to that. Well, this was about time to wrap it up here, Phil. Uh, first thing we need to do is Phil and I have released our new Patreon audio. Uh, we're kind of shifting focus and we're going to start do, trying to do a bi-weekly movie review uh, show for our Patreon that will be exclusively on Patreon. We just released our first episode. 
It is from a 2019 film named Lilith of Phil's choosing, and it's not a good movie, but we're going to... No. We're going to walk you through it. It's really fun. It's really funny. The movie's stupid. It kind of writes itself. But, uh, yeah, if you are interested in subscribing and hearing that, all you got to do is go to patreon.com slash subliminal deception, and it will take you right there. Thank you to everybody who has chosen to support us. It really helps us out, and we were go- we're going to be definitely having more of those on the horizon. Otherwise, Phil, if they want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? Well, they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. It's great to hear from everybody. Again, uh, we've been getting a lot of great emails, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, appreciate all the likes, all the shares, everything that comes with that, all the comments. Uh, Cody and I also have our own podcast, our own Instagrams. Mine is sdpodphil. Uh, Cody, you got one? Yeah, you can follow my personal Instagram at codyzebub. Uh, and come look at my memes and whatever. Uh, last thing we need you guys to do, if you could, log on to iTunes, leave the show a five-star review. doesn't really matter what you say. Just uh, hit the five-star and type in something in there. doesn't really matter what. If you are a Spotify user, how you can help us out is by hitting that follow button, and it's basically like a review for Spotify, and it boosts us up the charts, and I can tell you, I have noticed a difference for all of the people who have taken the time to do that for us. So thank you very much. Well, Phil, I got to say, excellent job. We learned a lot about Richard Milhouse Nixon, a man that is kind of long forgotten in our day. Uh, It was excellent. Excellent two-parter, Phil. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to make. Uh, Probably the most research I've ever done for any topic. So over two weeks, it was pretty crazy. It was glorious. We learned a lot about his ass. So, all right, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.